times of refreshing. That's what we're going to be focused on today. All of this, even this sermon series, is leading up to our Life Action event that Kara talked about in our announcement video that will be occurring October 7th through the 14th. Uh, we're asking the Lord to do mighty things among us and show himself strong and mighty and, and working in us and through us. And uh, we're going to be talking about that some today. The Bible speaks of personal or, or spiritual milestones, right? Uh, these these, uh, these rocks of remembrance that were set up. When the children of Israel crossed the Jordan, they were told to take rocks and to pile them up, not to worship those rocks, but as a remembrance of what God had done for them. And I don't know about you, but there are certain milestones in my life, spiritual moments that have occurred personally that I look back on. I'll give you one example. Like my calling to the ministry, my calling to gospel ministry. I look back on that many, many times, especially when things get difficult or I begin to wonder, Lord, did you really do that? Right? The Lord set things in place that if I had time I could share with you. Right? But they are, they are rocks of remembrance that I look back on. I'm praying and hoping, asking, pleading with the Lord that when life action ministry is here, We'll have one of those spiritual milestones, one of those rocks of remembrance as a corporate body together. You see, I, I'm asking the Lord to give us such a time of spiritual renewal corporately together that we begin to mark time by it, where we begin to say, I remember what it was like before life action, and now I remember what it's like after life action. So I'm asking you to join us in prayer. We've been doing 40-plus days of prayer together, pleading with the Lord, asking him to, to prepare us for this spiritual renewal, this time together uh, as we make much of him and focus on him for that week-long event together. One of those memorial stones or rocks of remembrance in my life personally was a trip that I was able to make. Uh, in 2014, I was able to travel to Israel. See it there? Right? And it's so amazing to be in, in, in the place where so much history has occurred and so much of what you read in the Bible, you're able to possibly stand right, right there right, and picture what's there. Now, a lot of ruins, a lot of things of that nature, but to see that this is a real place where there were real people, and we're not talking about fairy tales or myth. No, this, this is what God has given to us. And to be able to walk that land, to be able to go to Galilee, the northern part, or the hill country of Judea, and Jerusalem, which you're seeing right there in that picture, right? Or the Negev, which is the, the wilderness area down in the bottom, right? But you'll notice something that's missing there. Um, and she still gives me a hard time about this, but my wife did not go with me. I was gone for three entire weeks, and uh, she still tells me every time I talk about going back to Israel, she's like, I have to go this time, and I've promised that next time she will go with me, but I got, got some more pictures. Oftentimes, when we think about the wilderness, right, as a southern Alabama boy, when I hear wilderness, I think forest, right? I think big trees, and you don't know where you're going, you're getting lost, well, this is the wilderness of the Negev, right? Big, huge rock formations, right? And if you were to tell a nation 
And whether God had blessed it based on rocks, guess what? Israel is one blessed place. Because everywhere you go, you see rocks. And just more rocks. And more rocks. But all of these things came together to show me the geography that this was real. Real people in real places. Right? And if you're wondering, if you go to the next slide, that is me right there. I made sure to circle it so you can see it. Right? But that is me. Right? I was there. Just uh, photo proof. Look at the next one. Another rock formation. Right? Just, just gorgeous to be there. And, and I know you can't tell it right now because I've lost some of my muscle mass, but that's me too. I'm holding that rock up, right? I mean, it's been a couple of years, so, you know, I haven't worked out like nearly I intended to, but no, so that's that. Well, God has given us these places and given us his word to reflect back on. And as we return to the focus of our theme of thirsting no more and evaluating this morning, what times of refreshing mean? I'm going to ask you, have you ever been in a place where your soul desired something, desired more? Right? Maybe, maybe you're in a place like that now. Maybe you don't know even how to refresh your soul. Maybe you don't even think you have a soul, but you know that there's this yearning inside of you for something more. What does that mean? How do we handle that? Right? What does the Bible call us to? How can spiritual renewal occur? How can these times of refreshing take place? Is it even possible? Look with me at what Peter has to say in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. It'll be up on the screen for you. Peter says in this sermon, Repent, therefore, and turn back. It's exactly... Uh, what the word repent means to turn to instead of following your own direction to turn and follow God's direction instead of your way Peter says repent therefore and turn back that your sins all those things right that are contrary to what God has told you to do anything you've thought or done that's contrary to God's will or what he would desire for you is sin and Peter says repent turn back that those sins might be blotted out, might, that they might be forgiven, taken care of, removed from your account. And then he says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This spiritual awakening, this spiritual revival, this time of refreshment is possible. We find it in the life of Israel. There are a number of times, although uh, the times of refreshing, that phrase doesn't show up, there are a couple of times where uh, it came to my mind specifically. During the time of King Josiah, the Torah, the law, had been lost. But yet it's found during that time, and what we find is that the, the leaders read the Torah before the people, and the people repent. They turn from their own ways. They cry out to God. Lord, the Lord hears them, and there's this spiritual renewal that happens. Or in the book of Nehemiah, uh, a wooden platform is built for Nehemiah and he stands and he proclaims throughout the day what the Torah, what the, the instruction of the Lord in the first five books, what it says. And the people cry out to God because they realize that he is holy and they are sinful. And they ask God to forgive them and spiritual renewal occurs. 
But the spiritual renewal in those situations, is it forever lasting? No, it only takes reading a little bit later, right? A couple more chapters and you find out that it didn't stick. It didn't stay that way. No, sin has always been a problem and it's always a problem because Jeremiah says our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who can know them? The Lord searches the heart and he knows our intentions and the thoughts of our mind. And I don't know how that makes you feel, but that makes me feel exposed and open to him. He knows things that I try to hide from those that love me the most and care for me the most and that live with me in, my, in, in the same household. The Lord knows it. I'm laid bare before him. But yet, he says, spiritual renewal is possible. My relationship with him can be restored, and this time of refreshment can come, and this time of no longer thirsting. We look forward to the ultimate fulfillment of this, don't we? I mean, I look forward to the day where the things of this world that are caused by sin, such as uh, cancer and grief and losing people that you love and and those things are no longer things we have to deal with. But we're not there. We're not in the ultimate time of refreshing, you see, because sin still hinders us from that. But Peter is pointing to a time of ultimate refreshment. We, we don't have to worry about sin because sin has been conquered and vanquished. Peter speaks of this time of refreshment. And the question I have for you this morning is this. What's needed in order for these times of refreshing to come? What's needed? Is it just automatic? I mean, we have Life Action Ministries coming. Is it automatic that if you're here, every time that they're here from the 7th to the 14th, that spiritual renewal happens? It's not automatic. It's not something we can do autopilot on. No, there's things that we're involved in, principles that have to take, uh, have to take root within us. You see, these things, these principles, I believe, they speak of both the ultimate time of refreshing that we need, where sin is vanquished and taken care of, but also these imperfect previews that we have of refreshment that we long for and that we hope that the Lord does among us as a people during the week of Life Action Ministries. If you have, if you have your Bible, I ask you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29 and chapter 30. We're not going to cover this entire two chapters uh, by reading the entire text, but we're going to look for some principles out of Deuteronomy 29 and 30 about what spiritual renewal is and how we can be spiritually revived within us, no longer to thirst. I find this text extremely interesting, um, partly because this is what I wrote my thesis on. I have 150 plus pages on this chapter, on these two chapters. And so I, I was telling this to a couple of the men who were praying for me earlier, and they said, you're not going to read 150 pages, are you? So you can take a deep breath. No, we're not doing that. We're going to hit the highlights and the high points of this. But this is Moses' last sermon to the children of Israel. Have you ever met anyone that knows that their time on earth is coming to an end? And they have words that they want to share with you? 
Normally they choose their words carefully. They want to make sure that they impart the wisdom and the knowledge and uh, what's really, really important to them. This is Moses' last recorded sermon to the children of Israel. They're, they're on the, in the plains of Moab. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land. And he has this, this sermon, these words to share with them. But before we get there, we've got to get a running start to be able to understand where Deuteronomy 29 and 30 falls. So I want to remind us, our God created everything. And he created it very good, right? No sin, no cancer, none of those things that I talked about, right? But sin entered into the world, right? By, by men and women choosing, right, to serve themselves and worship themselves and do their own thing, which is called sin, rather than God, right? Adam and Eve fell. They, they sinned in such a way uh, in the garden that always, as sin always does, it brings separation. Separation from God, but separation from one another. But God didn't leave it in that situation. No, he made a promise that there would be a rescuer, a seed that would come and conquer that. And that seed has progressed all the way to Abraham. And God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. But that blessing's not just for you. It's for all the nations. I will make you a blessing to all the nations. And we know that the Israelites did not follow him. And they went into Egypt, into captivity. And we begin to ask, God, do you, are you really faithful to your promises and what you said to Abram? But God delivers them from the Pharaoh and the Egyptians who had enslaved them. And God brings them out, even with the blessings of the Egyptians, and God says to them as they approach Mount Sinai, he says, I'm going to make another covenant with you, just like I made with Abraham, and I will be your God and you will be my people. You belong to me. I have redeemed you. I have purchased you. I have saved you. I've delivered you. Therefore, at Sinai, the, God gives the law not to say, this is how you should live in order to gain my favor. No, this is how you should live because I have favored you, because I have called you out, because I have redeemed you unto myself so that you could be a light unto the nations. But, you remember me talking about our hearts, right? Hearts are deceitfully wicked. And it didn't take Israel long to fail and to show their true heart condition whether it was the sin at Peor where Balaam the prophet led them to sin by worshiping Baal, the God, a false God, or whether it was the spies who went into the land and they saw giants there and they say, we can't take on this land, therefore let's turn back. Man, we it would have been better if we would have stayed in Egypt. There, were murmuring, there was murmuring and complaining and grumbling about all that the Lord was doing and where they were. And to the degree that that generation died, God says, I'm going to wipe that entire generation out. Only those who have no understanding or knowledge of good or evil at this time, the Bible says, will survive and I will take them into the promised land. So they wander in the wilderness for these 40 years, sort of similar to the place that I was. 
And then they land at Moab, about to enter in to the promised land. And Moses gives them these three sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. One, rehashing all the history that has come up to that time. And then the middle portion, expounding upon the law in the ten words and saying, this is the specifics of how you are to live. But then we get to 29, and this is his final sermon, his final words to that group. And this is what he has to say. Look at verse 2. And Moses summoned all of Israel, and he said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Just think for a second about the things that this generation had taken part of, right? As children, right? They had seen the plagues that had occurred in Egypt. They had seen the Red Sea part and them walk, uh, walk as on dry ground through. They had been potentially hungry in the wilderness, right? No, nothing, to, nothing to grab, no, no convenience store to grab anything, but God provided bread from heaven, manna just as they needed it, quail, just as they needed it. They had come into contact with enemies who were much larger and greater than them, but yet God had protected them in the midst of all of that. But it's not just that. Look at verse 6. It says, you have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink. Uh, Sorry, verse 5. And I have led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Look at this. Your clothes have not worn out. And your sandals have not worn out. God says, just look at what you have on, Israel. It's a testimony of who I am. And all these signs, all these wonders, all these things that the Lord had done, as, we, as I was reading there at the bottom of verse 6, they were for a purpose. It says, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. You see these miracles, these signs, these wonders that God had, has done. In the life of Israel, and the miracles that Jesus did, they're not just to show that Jesus or that God has authority over nature. Oh, that's that's something. But they're to show that he is the only true and living God. And that he alone is to be worshipped and adored and praised and exalted for who he is. And so, in the midst of this... One of the first things I think that that Moses is explaining to the children of Israel and something for us in terms of times of refreshing to come is that we must remember what the Lord has done for us. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm prone to forget. I'm prone to forget those things that have occurred in the past where God has shown himself faithful, especially when the circumstances circumstances of life begin to crowd in. I forget that the sun is still there and it has not moved when I have my umbrella up to protect me from all the situations of life that are around. But yet, I know the sun is still there because God holds all things in order. And I know that God is still there even in the midst of my trials and my circumstances and my questions of why and what is going on. The Lord calls us to remember that we can trust in him 
You see, unlike our circumstances that are ever-changing, he is forever the same. And when we remember that, when we look back at those memorial stones, those stones of remembrance that have occurred throughout our life, we better understand how to walk through whatever circumstance or situation we find ourselves in presently. They show that the Lord is God and God alone. But I have a question for you. Is experiencing these acts enough? Is seeing with our eyes these acts enough? How many of you wish that you could have been around to see Jesus turn water into wine? How many of you wish you would have been around to see Jesus heal the lame man or rise from the dead and you go, you know what? If I had seen with my eyes these things, surely my faith would be stronger. All those things that the children of Israel saw, and I want you to look at verse 4. What the Lord has to say about them is not what you might expect. The Lord says, yet to this day, right? Moses, Moses speaks here, speaking of the Lord. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Had they physically seen all these things? Had they physically seen the pillar of cloud lead them by day and the pillar of fire lead them by night? Certainly. But yet they had missed it. You see, they were blind. They were dull of heart. They, were, uh, they, they could not hear. They were deaf because they weren't understanding the point of all of these miracles was to point to who God is. And his greatness and his, his, his majesty and his wonder. And their hearts had turned against God and they're grumbling and complaining and they're following their own direction in their sinfulness, rebellion against their one true God who had redeemed them. Surely there were individual Israelites who trusted in the Lord and their hearts were devoted to him. We get an example of that in Joshua and Caleb. But as a whole, the nation was not characterized by a loyal love for God and him alone. So brothers and sisters, we can see things with our eyes. We can see manifestations of God making himself known, right, in the work of lives of others, but yet we can still miss it that he's calling us to be spiritually renewed as well. Verse 9, Moses says, so keep the words of this covenant. God's making a, a reaffirmed covenant here in 29 and 30 with the children of Israel like the one he made in Sinai. So Moses says, so keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. You see, the Lord's mighty acts should propel us to obedience from a heart of devotion. I'm going to repeat that. The Lord's mighty acts should propel us to obedience from a heart of devotion. And this devotion, this heart of obedience, this, this is not an obligatory, I have to do this to gain favor with God. It's not this performance treadmill that you step on and you work and you work and work and you say, God, if I do this, then you'll do this. No. 
That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God has lavishly poured out redemption and grace upon us, grace upon grace upon grace, and that because of that, the overflow of our heart should be gratitude and love and the desire to follow him and obey him. This is not different from what the New Testament says. Think about the words of Jesus in John 14, verse 15. Look up on the screen. Jesus says, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. So, I don't know about you, but that's a very convicting verse. Because I say, Lord, I love you, I love you. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, not perfectly. Sin's not been vanquished yet. But Lord, am I really desiring to not only say, I love you, I love you, but to say, Lord, I obey you. I want to walk in your ways. I want to do what your will is. I want to follow hard after you and not just spout from my mouth my love for you, but to demonstrate that love in the way in which I obey you. So one of the first, or the first principle I think that Moses shares with us is that we are to remember what God has done in the past and that it might propel us to obedience. But the second one that I want us to look at is that times of refreshing come when we engage the corporate body together. Look at verse 10 through verse 12. Moses says, You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs and your tribes, your elders and your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is in your camps, from the one who chops the wood to the one who draws the water, that you may enter into a covenant with the Lord your God and into an oath which the Lord your God is making with you today in order that he might establish you today. As his people, and that he may be your God, just as he swore to you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the most exhaustive list given in the scriptures of people who attend something. I mean, it's like, right? Names are given in other places, but this just, it just keeps going. It feels as though Moses is going overboard and making sure we know everyone who's there because he wants us to know. Everyone is there. Moses has called all of the people together, the little ones, the wives, even the one who's laboring, the alien who's come into Israel, who's not a part of Israel, the one who even chops the wood and draws the water. All of them have come together. And Moses says, God is making a covenant with us. You see, the Lord never intended us to follow him separated from community. Following God is not an individual, man, if I can do this, right, by myself, apart from anybody else, then that finds merit in the eyes of the Lord. No, Christianity is a community, a community of followers who hold one another accountable when we slip and when we fall and when we sin, a community of believers that encourages one another when we're down. And community of believers that upholds one another, that grieves with others when they grieve, and rejoices with others when they rejoice. 
You see, in our Western context, we, we miss this. Even when we think of salvation, when we think of salvation, oftentimes we think of the individual benefits of salvation. And I'm thankful for the individual benefits of salvation. I'm thankful that I'm forgiven, that I'm redeemed, I'm adopted into his family. But do you know that it's not just individual? No, when we gather together, we are redeemed, right? Because of what Christ has done for us. When we come together, we have been adopted. There's something about this corporate nature, right? The congregation gathering together. And Moses understands that it's important. It's necessary. Let me give you an example of this, especially with life action coming. Let's say, as we're praying, that the Lord does a mighty work and, oh, Lord, do it. During that week that life action's here, or maybe even before that week, right? I'm fine with revival breaking out before they get here. That'd be okay with me. Are y'all okay with that? Okay, just checking, just checking. So let's say that the Lord does something amazing, right? One of those spiritual milestones that we look back at. And you hear it secondhand, but you weren't here. Are you ever going to experience that? Not in the same way. You see, the body will lose out on you not being here, on you not experiencing the movement of God when his people are united together in repenting of sin and of seeking him and spiritual renewal. Now, what I'm not talking about is a legalism that I'm adding on to you that says that every day those doors are open, you have to be here. That's skewing it to the other side. But what I'm asking you is this. Are you not just concerned about your own spiritual renewal? Are you also concerned about the spiritual renewal of those around you? Because that's what the Lord wants to do. He's concerned about you, but he's concerned about you in light of everybody else being renewed as well. So don't leave anyone out of this. You are part of this body. Just as Moses called everyone together, so we should be together seeking the Lord for this spiritual renewal. Look at verse 14. When I was writing, this was a striking verse to me. In light of Moses laying out in verse 10 and 11, everyone who's there, look at where, where, uh, what verse 14 says. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, note this, and with those who are not with us here today. Well, who missed out? Who didn't show up? Someone missed out. Someone didn't make it on time. Somebody was running late. Traffic was bad. No, that's not what I think this is talking about. I think Moses is making this point. When spiritual renewal comes to the community, it doesn't just affect this present generation. It affects subsequent generations as well. You see, because we hear about God's mighty works and moving in days past, and that births in us a desire to see him do that today. To see him revive us today. 
to see him awaken us, to spiritually renew us. And these memorial moments don't just become memorial moments for us, they become memorial moments for subsequent generations that we can point them back to and say the Lord showed himself faithful at this time. So, we are to remember what the Lord has done. We are to engage the corporate body together. But the third one I think uh, Moses shares with the children of Israel is this. They are to mortify sin. Mortify is not a word that we use very often, but it means to put to death. We are to mortify sin. Look at verse 18. Moses says, To the children of Israel, so that there will not be among you a man or a woman or a tribe or a a family whose hearts turn away today from the Lord our God to serve the gods of those nations. In the law, in the Torah, God had given Israel a way to handle sin. The sin of an individual who had not repented of their sin And in the theocracy of Israel, they were to be put to death. Sounds sort of strong to us in the Western culture. But yet, there's a reason for that. Because the sin of the individual can quickly affect the entire corporate body together. And although we're not, by any means, the theocracy of Israel and to put people to death for their sin within the body, right? The sin of an individual is still extremely important. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in regard to a brother who has sinned and is unrepentant of his sin and the way that the church should discipline said brother and look for restoration of said brother, he says this, Do you not know that a little leaven, a little sin, mixed in, leavens The whole lump of dough. Paul's making the point that a little sin that starts off, even with an individual, within the body, if not dealt with, spreads like a cancer to the entire body. Moses knew this already. Look at the end of verse 18. The sin of an individual can become the sinful root that produces sinful fruit within the congregation. Look at what Moses says. End of verse 18. That there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Moses says, yes, there's something about the individuality of sin, but yet that spreads throughout. It infects the entire body, and it has corporate implications. Sin always separates both from God and from others. When sin's not mortified, when sin's not put to death, then it has generational impact as well. Not just on us, but the generations that come after us. So these principles, one, we're to remember what the Lord has done and that that might propel us to obedience, but we're to engage the corporate body and we're to mortify sin. The next one that Moses shares with us is that we're to rest upon the sovereign Lord. Rest upon the sovereign Lord. This is where chapter 30 picks up. In the midst of 
a warning that Moses gives to Israel about this individual that if their sin's not dealt with will infect the entire community, the entire nation. Moses then lays out this warning that uh, what's going to happen is God will send his curses to judge the people with the desire to see them repent to the point where he will kick them out of the land that he's promised to them. All these curses will be poured out upon them and the situation increases, the, the curses increase. But the question we're left with is, will God's plan be thwarted or stopped or altered in some way? And this is where we can rest upon the sovereignty of God. In chapter 30, we find that it is the Lord who turns the heart as we turn in repentance. The Lord is the Lord who turns the heart as we turn in repentance. Eight times within the first 10 verses of chapter 30, we find in the Hebrew this root of turn, this word turn occurring. Moses is immensely concerned with the heart being right because he knows that the heart in its condition of being sinful The actions naturally flow from the heart. But if the heart is right, then then God changes the heart so that our actions, so that our obedience might be proper and pleasing to him. Look at verse 6 of Deuteronomy 30. Moses says, moreover... The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants. Note this. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you might live. Did Israel have a heart problem? Did they love the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul? All you have to do is keep reading, right, in the Old Testament. You find that not the case. Do you have a problem? Do I have a problem with serving the Lord with all my heart and with all my soul? Yes. But there's coming a day, there's coming a day when sin will be vanquished, it will be no more. Sin will be ultimately done away with by the Lord. However, brothers and sisters, in the sovereign plan of God, we don't get to say when that'll happen. But we know with certainty that it will. We live in a time where we see the effects of sin, we see the the losses and the struggles that we have But yet we look forward to the day when our one true and living God will make everything new. For he is the one true sovereign. He is faithful to all of his promises. And we cry out to him, come Lord Jesus and come quickly. So not only are we to remember what God's done in the past and let it propel us to obedience... Not only are we to engage the corporate body and to mortify sin and to rest in his sovereign plan and how he will bring times of refreshing ultimately, but Moses tells the children of Israel they're to resolve to follow the Lord that times of refreshing might come right then. Look at verse 15. Moses says, see, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. 
in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter it and possess it. I call heaven and earth to testify, to witness against you today that I, Moses, have set before you both life and death, the blessing and the curse. I've been faithful to do that. And then he imparts to them, he urges them, implores them, so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. You see, this is not automatic for the gener this generation. It's not automatic that God is going to bring this spiritual renewal, this time of refreshing. It's not automatic for us either, brother and sister, that God is going to do that among us corporately or individually, even though we have set a time asking the Lord to do that. No, we must be just like the children of Israel, just like Moses told them, we must choose life. We must choose to follow the Lord. There is no middle ground. We can't walk between two opinions of following the Lord and not following the Lord. No, we must choose one or the other. Do we resolve to love the Lord and in loving him obey his commands and repent of our sin and seek his refreshment, his refreshing? Or do we trust in ourselves? How does this play out? What does this look like if I'm to choose life? Verse 20, Moses says, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice and by holding fast, clinging to him. This is the way we choose life. This is the way we resolve to follow the Lord. I'd love to tell you that the nation of Israel did that, but they did not. In fact, the Lord already knew that in Deuteronomy chapter 31. He's going to say to Moses, write this song because the people will sin. Fellowship of Wildwood, I have a question for you. As we think about times of refreshing and we ask the Lord to come, are we remembering what the Lord has done in the past? And is it propelling us, not just memories of those things, but is it propelling us to obedience now in the present? Are we concerned about the corporate body and engaging with the corporate body? Or are we just sort of holding that to ourselves? Lord, spiritually revive me. Lord, spiritually revive us. Are we mortifying sin? Are we putting sin to death in our lives, personally, and also within our body, corporately? Are we resting in the sovereignty of God and the sovereign Lord who will bring his plan to pass? And are you resolving to follow the Lord, choosing life by loving him, obeying him, clinging to him. Acts chapter 3, once again. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, forgiven, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Would you pray with me?
Lord God, we thank you so much, Lord, that you work among us and in us. And Lord, that times of refreshing are possible, Lord, and ultimately will come, and it's certain that they will come because of who you are and that you are faithful to your promises. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that we can remember the way you've worked in the past, and Lord, that you've shown yourself strong and mighty. And may we not just rest in what you've done in the past, but may we, in obedience, seek you now to do something amazing in the present and in the future among us as your body. Lord, I also acknowledge, Lord, that there, there may be those, Lord, that are here this morning that they are thirsty, Lord. They are in need of you. Lord, the situations of life have gotten them in a vice. And Lord, they need someone to pray with them. They need someone to help point them to you, to give them words of affirmation and exhortation, Lord, to, to trust in you and to lean into you and to cling to you and obey you. And I thank you so much, Lord, that over in the response station, we have men and women who are there just to voice a prayer over them, to open your word and impart truth. Father, Lord, thank you for your body, and thank you, Lord, that you love your body so much that you would send your very own son to pay the penalty for our sin that we might know you and that we might ultimately be revived in you. These things we pray in your name. Amen.